Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Scholars sometimes refer to this chapter as a digression, and it certainly does appear to break the flow of the letter. Paul has been talking about spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts, and chapter 14 is about spiritual gifts. But here in chapter 13, we have a poem or a hymn or even an ode to love. And at first, it doesn't seem to fit. But if you track with him all the way through, you will see that it does. He is interrupting the flow of the argument in order to establish proper priority. Sometimes you need to right-size the issue before you can finish the conversation. And that is exactly what Paul is doing here. He says, gifts are important. Absolutely. Let's talk some more about that. But before we do, let me remind you of what really matters. Love really matters. Gifts differ. Gifts are temporary. But love is universal and love is forever. So let's care most about that. Love is the more excellent way. Scholars generally divide chapter 13 into three parts. Paul presents love, first of all, as the necessary gift in verses 1 to 3, then as the beautiful gift in verses 4 to 7, and then lastly, as the eternal gift in verses 8 to 12. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Paul's math is absolutely fascinating. He says, in essence, that five minus one is zero. If I speak in tongues... And if I have prophetic powers, if I have incredible knowledge, if I have faith even to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. I'm a giant zero in terms of the kingdom of God. D.A. Carson highlights the obvious implication here. He says, principally, therefore, any particular gift is dispensable. So far as spiritual profit or attestation of the Spirit's presence is concerned, but love is indispensable, close quote. The Corinthians have been acting as if the gift of tongues proves that you're a Christian. But Paul says, even if I have the deluxe version of tongues, even if I speak in the tongues of angels, but have not love, I am nothing. The force of the argument, of course, is devastating. Paul is saying that it is not tongues that proves you are a Christian. It is love. You can have all the gifts in greatest measure, But if you have not love, you are nothing. He carries on with this theme in verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Amazingly, he says, even if I do what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do in Matthew 19, and sell all my goods and give them to the poor, which Jesus said he could do if he wanted to be perfect, even if I do that, And even if I hold fast my confession of Christ through the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. These 
things don't mean anything. And these things in no way constitute compelling Christian witness unless they flow from and are inspired by authentic spiritual love. Everything Paul lists here can be done and has been done by unconverted pagans. Pagans speak in tongues all the time. Ecstatic speech was well known among the Greeks and the Romans, as indeed it is among pagan groups still today. There is nothing distinctly Christian about speaking in tongues. And there is nothing distinctly Christian about prophecy for that matter either. Pagan lands were literally crawling with prophets. And the pagans had their scholars, of course, as well. Socrates was a pagan and Pythagoras. They were brilliant men, but that doesn't make them Christians. And of course, pagans can be generous, faithful, and brave. You can go right down the list. Pagans can do all of these things, in some cases, just as well or better than we can. And so none of these things count for anything, ultimately, Paul says, unless they flow from love. Love is the necessary gift. Incidentally, this is why some older Christian writers and translators preferred to use the word charity to translate the type of love that Paul is commending here. In modern times, we tend to think of the word charity as relating to organizations that serve the poor and get a tax exemption from the government. And that's true. But that isn't what the word really means. The word charity comes from the Greek word charis, which means gift. So we used to use the English word charity to translate the Greek word for love here, agape, because it communicated that this special type of love had to be received from God before it could be given to other people. It was gift love. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, defines this love, charity, in precisely this way. He says that this divine gift love in the man enables him to love what is not naturally lovable. Lepers, criminals, enemies, morons, the sulky, the superior, and the sneering, closed quote. Isn't that marvelous? This is love that originates in God and that flows by his spirit through his people in order to touch, call, save, and restore the broken and the lost of this world. It is miracle love. It is Jesus love. And without that love as the foundation and inspiration for everything we say and do, we are nothing. And we accomplish nothing. We are little more than energetic pagans. It is love that ultimately animates all authentic Christian life and mission. Love is the necessary gift. And love is the beautiful gift. Paul says that in verses 4 to 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The Apostle says 15 different things here about love. We won't have time to hit them all, but many of them are reasonably self-explanatory. The first thing he says is that love is patient in verse 4a. It's important for us to note that Paul uses verbs to describe love here, not nouns. It is hard to capture that in English, but literally Paul is saying here that love acts in a patient manner. The same is true of the second thing he says, love is kind, verse 4b, or literally, love acts in a kind manner. Leon Morris says that by means of this word, which Paul may have invented, 
he means to communicate that love reacts with goodness towards those who ill-treat it. It gives itself in kindness in the service of others, closed quote. And of course, that sounds a great deal like the sort of love that Jesus commands in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Matthew 5, 44. That's Jesus' love. And nobody had ever heard of that before the Son of God took on flesh and walked among us. Paul goes on to say in verse 4c that love does not envy, love does not boast, love is not arrogant, and love is not rude, verse 5a. The Greek word used there has the sense of doing what is shameful. Paul uses it elsewhere to refer to sexual misbehavior and behavior generally that offends against order. It seems then that what Paul is saying here is that a loving Christian does not disrupt the Christian community with their inappropriate, embarrassing, or self-indulgent behavior. And that's a useful reminder. Seventh, Paul says in verse 5b that love does not insist on its own way. It is not self-assertive. 5c, love is not irritable. 5d, love is not resentful. Now, in my opinion, the ESV is not very helpful here. It has love keeps no record of wrong in the margin note, which is useful only if you're one of those few people who reads their margin notes. But they leave as the main body translation, love is not resentful, which I'm not sure I understand. The, the Greek word used there, logizomai, is a word borrowed from accounting and is often used by Paul in the sense of to reckon or to account. Gordon Fee, a well-known New Testament scholar, writes here, Just as God in Christ does not reckon our sins against us, 2 Corinthians 5.19, so the one who loves does not take notice of the evil done against him or her in the sense that no records are kept, waiting for God or man to settle the score, closed quote. I think that's right. I think it would be more helpful to leave this as love keeps no record of wrong. The tenth thing that Paul says here is that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. That's verse 6. And again in verse 6, love rejoices with the truth. Of course, Christian love can never be divorced from truth. The BDAG Greek Dictionary actually defines the word used here for truth in this way. It says that truth has to do with the content of what is true, especially the content of Christianity as the ultimate truth, close quote. If you aren't sharing that truth with people, then whatever else you may be doing, it is not ultimately loving by biblical standards. Next, in verse 7, Paul says that love bears all things. That's a difficult phrase or word to translate into English. The Pillar New Testament commentary suggests that the phrase means basically always bears up or always bears the strain or never caves in to the pressures of the world, closed quote. That's a useful reminder, isn't it? When we cave on Christian truth or doctrine, we do the world no lasting favor. When we call good what the Bible calls evil, we may save our reputation, but we do not save our friends and neighbors. So love tells the truth, even when the world calls it hate. Next, in verse 7b, Paul says, love believes all things. Paul isn't saying here that love is naive. He is saying that love is always willing to believe the best. And that goes nicely with what Paul says next. Love hopes all things. Christian love requires a strong belief in the future that the Bible says is coming. 
Remember that it was because Jesus knew who he was and where he was going that he was able to love his disciples to the end. And so it will be with us. Which leads into the last thing that Paul says in verse 7. Love endures all things. Of course, we think of Jesus praying for his tormentors as they nailed him to the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is the kind of love that changes the world. Thanks be to God. Truly, love is the beautiful gift. And then lastly, Paul says in verses 8 to 12 that love is the eternal gift. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Verses 8 to 10 have been the center of considerable controversy in recent years. Many of you will know that. What does it mean that prophecies, tongues, and knowledge will pass away? And when will they pass away? The doctrine of cessationism suggests that certain spiritual gifts have ceased, citing verse 8, because the perfect has come. The perfect in that argument is usually understood as the closed canon of Scripture. But there are a variety of problems with that understanding, not the least of which is the fact that it is rarely applied evenly. They want it to mean that tongues have ceased, and some, even depending on their definition of prophecy, would like for that to have ceased as well. But almost no one is prepared to argue that knowledge has ceased, and therefore it remains a minority opinion among New Testament scholars. It is far more natural to understand the perfect here as referring to the eternal kingdom. When we are in that perfected state, we will have no need of all these sorts of spiritual gifts at all. That is the sense given to the passage by David Pryor, for example, who says each of these will either become irrelevant or else be swallowed up in the perfection of eternity. For when the perfect comes... The imperfect will pass away, closed quote. D.A. Carson is on the same page here. He says, in these verses, Paul establishes the end of the age as the time when these gifts must finally be abolished, closed quote. So again, love is the true senior gift. All these other gifts are for childhood only. Thus, Paul goes on to say, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways, close quote. So there is a sense in which some gifts may be outgrown, but love endures forever. Love is the ultimate mark of Christian maturity. Verse 13 then brings us to the bottom line. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Love is the senior gift. Love is the essential quality. Love is what makes us shine. And therefore, love must be the highest ambition and the most dogged pursuit of the Christian church. 
That's what Paul says in the very next verse, the first verse of chapter 14. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. That's how things are ordered in a healthy and mature Christian church. Spiritual gifts are appreciated, but they are kept in proper perspective. They are received gratefully, however God disposes, but the energy of the church, the effort of the church, the pursuit of the church is focused on growing in love. Having made this most essential of points, Paul is now prepared to return to his discussion of these other temporary, various, helpful, wonderful, and less senior gifts. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the End of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 